But when we experience memorable things in life, we take time to reflect because we don't want to forget. This is why when some of us take trips uh, that are memorable, we may journal because we don't trust that we're going to remember and we don't want to forget. Uh, this year, there's so many things I'm grateful for, for uh, a wife, and we've celebrated 16 years of marriage, for two boys, for a family, for a church family, a city we love. This year in 2018 took me on, I was able to take two trips that I remember for the rest of my life. For back in January, I traveled with a group of 35 church leaders with Compassion International to Ethiopia, and I was able to visit multiple sites throughout Ethiopia, some of the poorest places in the world to see what God was up to. And at the end of our trip, we took time for all 35 of us to come together to share stories and experiences because we wanted to remember. We did not want to forget. I went to Israel a couple of weeks ago with a couple of dozen of you and some others and experienced some amazing things that I'll never forget in my life. Yet, we took time every night where we would reflect on our days and our groups getting back together soon to share stories because there's so many things we experience that we want to remember and we don't want to forget. When people come to the end of their lives and they attempt to dispense wisdom, they're trying to give you things to remember so you don't forget. I've had the chance. I've been invited into hospital rooms or houses when people know they're breathing some of their last breaths and they invite me in and and I've yet to sit with someone who's dying whose last wish is, hey, Josh, let me name the two restaurants you've got to make it to sometime in the next year. Or, you know, people don't sit and say, hey, here's the show on Netflix, and it's going to take you six weeks, but you've got to make it through it. It's not like that. They, they share principles and values and what it means to be present and what it means to embrace life and cling to life and, and be people of joy. This morning in Mark chapter 10, Jesus comes to the end of his public ministry. And it's not the end of his ministry, but it's the end of his ministry before he enters into Jerusalem and, and he dies. So in Mark chapter 10, this is it. For three, three and a half years, he has been in public ministry, teaching and healing. And now he comes to the end of his public ministry. And there are a few things that he has already been teaching. And now he's going to come back to these same things because he knows that his time as they've known him, is coming to an end. And there are some things he wants them to remember so that they do not forget. Uh, in Mark chapter 10, we've been in this series for three months. I've, I've loved walking you through Mark chapter 1 through 10. So we're going to take a break. And I'm going to come back to this in the season of Easter. So for about seven weeks before Easter, we're going to walk through Mark chapter 11 through 16. So from the triumphal entry to the last week of Jesus before he dies. But for now, we're ending with Mark 1 through 10. And I shared with you the first week that the book of Mark, Mark is like a, he's like a director in Hollywood, the way he writes. It's over 40 times he uses the word now or immediately, where Mark focuses a lot more on what Jesus does than on what Jesus says. Mark wants you to know that Jesus is the Son of God, but that Jesus can only be the Son of God by knowing Jesus as a suffering Messiah. He's not the one who came as a king who's wearing a nice robe and has the palace or palaces and beach houses and lake houses and that kind of power. He came as the suffering Messiah who had to die so people could have life. He's the Messiah that no one expected yet everyone needed. And as you read through the book of Mark over and over again, Mark wants you to know that there is a cost to discipleship. 
That following Jesus is not some once-in-a-lifetime decision you make to confess Him as Lord and to be baptized. It is a decision you make to enter into a whole new kind of life. And I think in America today, sometimes what we have to ask as Christians is, what have we left to follow Jesus? And have we left anything to follow Jesus? And I'm not saying that's to cost you something where you have to live to where you're disciplining your body to experience pain so that you, you're following Jesus. But there, there's a cost to discipleship. It means something. When I was a child, I didn't think about the cost to anything. I didn't watch commercials and think, how much does it cost for my parents or grandparents to buy me that for Christmas? I didn't think about cost. My family moved from East Texas to the Dallas area when I was 12, and we moved from this little town of 7,000 people to the Dallas-Fort Worth area. We had never seen a restaurant row before. Like our little town, we had a Golden Corral and a Pizza Hut and a like Sonic and Dairy Queen, but that was it. And now we moved to Dallas-Fort Worth where restaurants were everywhere. The first Sunday we were in our new, new home after church, we went to Ryan's. Of all places we go to, we went to Ryan's. I'm not hating on Ryan's. It's all right. It's kind of like a loopies. But I was the first one through line. My dad was at the end. So we had family and some extended family was there. My dad was going to pay for lunch. And I wasn't thinking about the cost. I was 12. I thought it was a lunch buffet. So I went through the line. And I didn't do any veggies. I just got all meat loaded up with meat and I went and sat down before my dad paid so I was already eating on the meat not knowing that I just racked up $75 of food on my tray I didn't think about the cost I didn't think about the cost when I was growing up of leaving a light on and why my dad always wanted me to turn lights off but now that I'm a dad I always think about the cost right I think about the cost of what's the cost of utility bills? What's going to be the cost of my kid's college? And I think about the cost. And how much do we think about the cost of what it means to follow Jesus? In Mark chapter 10, there are four stories I want to show you today. Four stories, and all these are stories that Jesus is coming back to something he's already taught. Now, these aren't four stories of Jesus taking the initiative. In a couple of them, you're going to see Jesus responding to other people who have taken the initiative. But let me take you on a journey this morning. The first one is about children. So in, in Mark chapter 10, verse 13, Jesus comes back to, to this in, in 13. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. Let me remind you, if you flip back, it may be on the same page of your Bible in chapter 9. Jesus took a little child and put it in its lap and told the disciples, you have to become like one of these to enter the kingdom. It just happened. And now they're trying to keep these kids from Jesus. In verse 14, when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. And he said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. He said, truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. Jesus gave value and dignity to the least of these. He gave value and dignity to small children. He held them, invited them, honored them, and don't miss the last one. He blessed them. This is more than Jesus just looking at a small child and saying, bless your little heart. This goes back to Genesis chapter 1. Where Jesus is pronouncing blessing. He's declaring identity and dignity and worth. Now this was a time when people didn't think a lot of kids. Like children weren't the ones you modeled your life after. People didn't think a lot of children. And now Jesus flips the script. Where unless you become like children, you can't enter into the kingdom of heaven. Children who are innocent. Children who are 
sense of, uh, who have worth and, and a sense of awe, unless you become like this. Now, back then and even today, we may throw around things like you're being childish. And we, we think of childhood as something you grow out of, which is right. That hopefully people do grow out of childhood. You mature. Yet Jesus flips this whole script and, and think about the kingdom of God that unless you become like one of these. This is the second time Jesus honors children. In the last week of his public ministry. In chapter 9 he does it and in chapter 10 he does it. You know who did a great job of this in most of our lifetimes? Mr. Rogers. Who honored children, gave dignity to children, advocated for children. John Ortberg, a great author, he says, Children had a kingdom they belonged to long before Walt Disney ever came along. And Ortberg's not knocking Disney. He's just saying before there was that, there was someone else who came and said, The kingdom of God belongs to, such as th- to, to these. And it's Jesus saying this about children. Now, a second story in Mark 10 is in Mark 10, 35, there's who is the greatest. This comes back up. I preached on this last week as in chapter 9, Jesus asked his apostles and he says, what were you arguing about on the road? And they were arguing about who is the greatest. So apparently they didn't get the lesson. Jesus was just teaching them because in Mark 10, 35, James and John come to Jesus. And it's like they come and I don't know what the other 10 are doing. But I almost hear this as a whisper, like they're coming to Jesus, like trying to keep it quiet so no one else hears. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And Jesus says, What do you want me to do for you? He asked. And they replied, Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. Jesus says, You don't know what you were asking. He goes on to say, Are you willing to take the cup of bitterness that I'm about to drink he says you don't even know what you're asking now Mark's a little kind here because Mark tells the story as James and John go to Jesus and ask hey I got a favor but Matthew tells it totally different in Matthew chapter 20 Matthew says this the mother of Zebedee's children James and John came to Jesus So it's like Mark knew how this story goes but he wasn't going to throw James and John under the bus Matthew took a different route He said, let me tell you how this really went down. James and John didn't go to Jesus. James and John's mama went to Jesus. And and a lot of moms in this room are like, that's right. Mamas are proud of their kids. She's the one that goes to Jesus and, and, and falls before him, but is making this request for James and John to sit at the left and sit at the right in the kingdom. And, and after this, you have, in Mark chapter 10, verse 41, here's what it says. When the ten heard about this. I don't know if the ten heard about this because they could overhear the conversation. Or if James and John's mom, like, took a picture on Instagram or posted on social media of, hey, today's going to be a great day for my kids. I have a great request. Please pray. Hashtag proud mama. And then later in the day, she's like, didn't go as planned. Hashtag still proud mama. I don't know how it spread, but somehow the ten found out. So the ten make a request. They come, they're, they're, or they're upset. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. And Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who were regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. But not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
This is the second time Jesus addresses the disciples within a few days. Talking to them about what it means to be the servant of all. That what it means to be a follower of Jesus is not how high can you climb or how popular can you get or how much power can you have. It's living your life as a servant for the good of the world. This is twice in just a few days Jesus highlights children and twice he talks to his disciples about what it means to be servant leaders. And the last story in chapter 10 is about a blind man. A story I've preached multiple times since I've been here. One of my favorite stories in all the Gospels. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell this story, but only Mark gives him a name. In Mark chapter 10, verse 46, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to die, but they came to Jericho. And it says, as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, when they were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and he said, Call him. Which I always pause because here's Jesus. It's like pausing to tell a blind man to come to him instead of him going to a blind man. Jesus often does things in a way that we would never expect. He stopped and he said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up on your feet, he's calling you. So throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and he came to Jesus. And Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? one of my favorite questions Jesus asks. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see again. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and he followed Jesus along the road. In the last few days of Jesus' public ministry, twice he heals blind men. The end of chapter 8, now in chapter 10. So twice he talks about children. Twice he talks to his disciples about being servant leaders. And twice he heals a blind man, which he healed the blind man because he had compassion on the blind man. Yet these stories are also to try to open up the disciples to see God's heart and God's mission. Because they were partially blind and they were blind and they were in need and we're in need of being able to see God better. So if you look up on the screen right there, here it is. Jesus, he spends the last few days of his public ministry. He spends time honoring children, talking about who is the greatest. There are two stories of blind men who were healed. And if you notice there, there's a part that is missing between 17 and 34. And right in between all of this is this story we've come to know as the rich young ruler. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell the story about the rich young ruler. Matthew is the only one who calls him young. Luke is the only one who calls him a ruler. Yet all three call him rich. So you put it all together, he's the rich young ruler. Now we don't know how young he was. Maybe he was 25. I think we can all agree if they're using the word young, he's under the age of 40, right? I'm just joking, all right? (laughs) Uh, He has some kind of power in his life and, and he's wealthy. Now here's what I want you to see right here on the screen is... Mark, the way he tells this story and the way it goes down is Jesus had just finished honoring children and now the very next story is about a rich young ruler. Where side by side are two stories in which you would think if there's someone you want your children to model their lives after, it's going to be the person who has been successful and seems to have good morals and good ethics, not a small child. Yet what Jesus says is a small child is the one you model your life after, not the rich young ruler. Doesn't it drive you nuts sometimes how Jesus talks about the kingdom of God? So it's these helpless babies who aren't honored by the world who Jesus honors. And now it's the rich young ruler who Jesus is going to challenge. 
And in the book of Mark, this is the only story of Jesus calling someone to follow him in which it does not end up being someone who responds by following him. And here's how it goes. In verse 17, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him and said, good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I want to stop just right there for a moment. This young man, we don't know what his occupation was. We just, I think, can figure in life, this guy had been grinding. He had been winning, it feels like. Yet he comes to a point where he wants not just salvation, he wants assurance of salvation, which is something a lot of us want at some point in our lives. We want assurance that we're living life in a way that honors God and is living to the best of our ability. And he wants this assurance. So he comes to Jesus and he falls before him. So there's a person in power falling before Jesus. Everything in his life had been, up until this point, I think it's safe to say, had been based on effort and style and grind and maybe privilege or achievement. And for almost all this guy's life, everything good had been something that could be achieved. And now he comes before Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I wonder if he's asking, have I, have I done enough? Have I already done enough where I can play the rest of my life safe? And Jesus responds with this, verse 18. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. And then Jesus names a few. He doesn't name all of them, he names a few. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, and you need to honor your mom and dad. There's a good chance this man had honored all of those. He says he does. Yet what commands does Jesus leave out of the ten? He leaves out the commands of having idols before God. He leaves out the commands of honoring the name of God, like don't misuse, no more OMGs. He leaves out the command of Sabbath of taking time to, to stay away from your work so you remember who is the God over all work. So Jesus leaves out a few commands that maybe this guy was breaking in his life, but the guy responds in verse 20, Teacher, all those you just named, I've kept since I was a boy. And then here's where Jesus hits him. Verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And he said, one thing you lack, Go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. If you look on the screen, I, I just underlined five commands Jesus gave this man to go, sell, give, come, and follow. Five commands. And Jesus goes right after this guy. And throughout the years, we've watered down this story so much to where sometimes we're like, uh, well, he wasn't saying go sell everything. He was just telling the guy to get his priorities straight. It doesn't seem to be how the story goes. There have been people throughout the years who have said, because Jesus follows this up with, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And there have been people who have said, well, if there's, there's one letter in Greek that if you, if you change that letter, it's not camel, it's a rope. So it, they try to make it sound a little easier. Or there have been people who have said, well, in Jerusalem, that there was a gate called the eye of a needle and a camel could get through it, but a camel would have to kneel down. But it, it was like rich people hundreds of years after Jesus who came up with this theory like anything we can do to kind of water down this text. But I think the only way to read this is to know there are times where Jesus and there are stories in the Bible that are meant to shock us. That are meant to make us take a breath. 
that are meant to challenge us, that are meant to haunt us, convict us, and make us reflect. That I think for that man, Jesus meant what he said. That if you want to follow me, you need to go sell everything and you give it to the poor. And I think there are times throughout history where this same command has come to people. The same exact command. I don't think it's a command for everyone. But Jesus' response to this guy is, you lack one thing. I wonder why Jesus didn't say you lack ten things or five things or twenty things. Maybe it's Jesus saying, hey, let's focus on one and then we can get to the next one. But I think what Jesus is going after is there are so many things in between you and the heart of God that he's trying to open up the eyes of this rich young ruler to see here are some things you've got to let go of so you can be everything God wants you to be. And the story ends with the guy goes away sad. His face fell because he had great wealth. Now, that's where the story ends. There are some traditions and some people who talk about how this was a man who ended up giving his life to Jesus and became a, a great church father. And maybe that's how the story went. Maybe he went away sad and he chose never to do anything about the call Jesus placed on his life. But I think sometimes the reason stories end like this, that we aren't really sure exactly what happened, is because that story is meant to become our story. That when Jesus gives us this command and this call, what do we do with it? What is the one thing we still lack? I want to ask those who, uh, the women and men who are serving communion, if you will, go ahead and go to the back to get the bread. I have a good friend who's been preaching at a church for 25 or 30 years. And he was preaching this story of the rich young ruler at his church and... They put a challenge in front of the church. They said, we're going to focus on this story for a few weeks. And what we're asking for you is on this certain date, we're asking you to bring, the object, bring that one thing that you need to let go of in order you, for you to live into the heart of God more deeply. It could be an object. If it's not an object, if it's an emotion or a sin, you could write it on a card. But they, they prepared for this. They equipped the church. They prayed for it. They had it like three weeks where on this day, we're going to bring objects and we're going to bring them to the front of the stage and lay them on the stage. And these are the one things that we're laying so that we can pursue the heart of God. And as they did this, this day came. They didn't know what to expect. But there were people bringing all kind of stuff. People were bringing index cards with words on them. People were bringing remote controls. People were bringing magazines and porn magazines. They were just, lit. and what do you do with that as a church where people are giving up things right there on the steps? But these one things were being laid out on the steps as people were saying, hey, Jesus has called me to something greater, and I've got to take seriously any obstacle that's getting in the way of me and that. And to never be okay. We're just sitting back and saying, have I done enough just so I can be saved in the end? Because Jesus desires so much more for us. He gave up everything. And invites us today to take seriously what is the one thing. So in communion, as we celebrate the body that was broken so we could be made whole, the body that was broken so we could be put back together, may we take this with open hands reflecting on whatever that one thing in our lives may be that's keeping us from the heart of God. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. And God, I pray again today that if I've said anything that 
doesn't honor who you are. Your heart and your nature, may it fall to the ground and be trampled and not be remembered. But if I've spoken truth of who you are, may those words sink deep into hearts and bear great fruit. God, right now we honor Jesus, the hero of the story, the center of the universe. It's for all you have done to give us life. We give you thanks. And now draw us and call us, invite us into a time of reflection. And God, if you need to push or challenge us in this moment to take more seriously what it means to be a follower of you, have your way with us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.